Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and nobody knows the words from here? <laughs> nobody ever does because it's it's New Year's, it's a party, and it's right on the growing edge of a of another year on this planet and in our lives and it's good to be with you my friend right happy here happy right new now. year's parker and welcome to the growing edge i'm parker palmer and i'm carrie newcomer to the words and habit between us and to us and how we live So, Parker, we, we've been talking about how we wanted to do the first podcast for the new year, and we decided we wanted to um, work with the idea of our New Year's revolutions. Yeah, absolutely. Our New Year's revolutions, and we have to pronounce that word carefully so that people don't hear resolutions, which is the word we normally use at this time of year. And as you know, Carrie, for me, this came about in a kind of interesting way. Um, about uh, four years ago, I was writing an end-of-year column for my friends at On Being, Krista Tippett's uh, podcast, radio program, and website. And I started typing, realizing that that uh, New Year's was just a few weeks away. And I typed uh, my New Year's revolutions. And then I noticed the typo, and I went to correct it and said to myself, wait a minute, that's exactly what I want to write about. Not, not resolutions, which have never really worked for me, but revolutions. Um, that's a happy typo. That's a typo with a big clue in it for mm -hmm. where I really want this article to go. And it probably came from my unconscious as much as anything else. Uh, five, four years ago, we were already... Um, swimming in some pretty deep problems in this society. And I was one of many, many people who wanted to join a variety of revolutions, large and small, that were ongoing, that would help us move toward a more perfect union, that would help us address some of the fundamental issues of human dignity, human, human rights, and fulfillment in human life that have been vexing this society for a long time. So that led me to to make some revolutions uh, or commit myself to participating in some revolutions. And that brings us to where we are right now. I do love that story. And you wrote about it in that piece that you wrote for On Being, how you uh, typed out the words revolution, but you were thinking resolution. And as you were pondering it, you immediately got bored. And then you saw that, that typo and said, ah... Now, that's interesting, and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, at, at that moment, Carrie, you're right, back in 2015, the word resolution seemed small and puny to me, like these little things we do. I'm going to get more exercise next year, I'm going to eat better, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but revolution seemed just right. Not, not that I have the power to start revolutions, but there are a number of revolutions already underway. And perhaps my resolve for 
the new year ought to be to join one of those or help foment one of those. And in fact, that's where I, that's where I ended up in the article, as you know. So, so what would be one of those um, revolutions that uh, either that you wrote about then or that you're thinking about right now? Yeah, it it actually happens to be one that I've been thinking a lot about in recent months. Um, and let me put it in a little bit of context. So, like you, I'm a writer, and writing is one of my main ways of being present in the world. So I've always been interested in and caring about language, the use of language. I think language is fascinating. It has the power to do harm. It has the power to do good. Mm-hmm. It can undermine. It can inspire. Uh, and I think honesty in the use of language is a really critical piece of the puzzle. You know, we, we've, we've often said to each other that if you, can, if you can name a problem clearly, something that's lost in the fog for you or in the muddle of your own mind and heart, Naming it clearly and accurately is is sort of getting part way there to some sort of solution or some sort of deeper understanding. And if you can't name it, you can't claim it and you yeah, can't work with it. That's true. And so clear and honest naming seems to me important. And it seems to me especially important in our political lives these days. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that there's not just one elephant in the room, but a lot of elephants in the room. When people talk about politics, we, we feel like we're walking on eggshells. We're, yeah. we're basically afraid of each other, and we're afraid of offending each other if we, if we use the wrong word. And, and yet, at the same time, there's an American value around the person who calls them as he or she sees them. Right? That, that's an old, old saying. I like this person because they call him as they see him. And I think it's important to, yeah. uh, to personal life and to democracy that we call him like we see him. And, and I'll, I've been thinking about a, a, a parallel that will take me where I want to go politically. Um, it, there are more than a few people who know what it is to grow up in a family where mom, or dad, is an alcoholic. And people who've been in situations like that, who've lived in situations like that, know that it does not help to say, to brush it off with, oh, dad just enjoys his drinks, uh, his cocktails before dinner. If dad is an alcoholic, that needs to be named clearly and without embarrassment, because it's the first step towards trying to help dad liberate himself from alcohol. And there are millions of people in this world who will look back on their own experience and say, yes, as hard as it was to hear that word, that was the beginning of the clearing of the fog for me. That helped me take those next creative steps when when people that I know love me and care about me said, Mm-hmm. We have to sit down and talk realistically about the fact that you're an alcoholic and we need to help you find some way to work through that for your sake and yeah. for our sake as well. So if that's an acceptable 
parallel or analogy. Let me speak directly about American politics. There's a forbidden F word in hmm. American political discourse these days. And the F word is fascism. Many people regard that word as a, a gross and intolerable insult to a political leader to say this person has fascist tendencies or this person has fascist inclinations or dreams and desires. But what I want to point out is that just like the word alcoholic, fascism has a technical definition in political science. Yes, it does. Properly used, it's not a gratuitous insult any more than it is to sit dad down and say, you're an alcoholic, dad, and we need to find some way to help you. I wrote an article again for On Being, eight months before I published an article at On Being, eight months before the general election of 2016. The article was titled, Will Fascism Trump Democracy? It was a concern very much on my heart and mind at that time, and the concern hasn't lessened since that time. People can find the article at the On Being site. In fact, I expect we can post a link to it on our website if folks would like to read it. Yeah, it's a really wonderful article. I, I sent it to many people. Well, thank you. Um, because my intent with it was to open up conversation, and to some extent I think that happened. But here is one dimension of fascism that, in my mind, makes it an important label that isn't a gratuitous insult. It's a naming of fact. So every scholar who's ever studied fascism will say it has at least these three elements. First, the leader gets onto a problem that is vexing a lot of people in country X, such as in our country, the fact that a lot of people not only feel left out of American affluence, but are in fact left out. Of course they're left out. When there are 400 people in this country who possess more wealth than the bottom 40%, of Americans. That's not imagination on their part. They are left out of, econ of an economy that's dysfunctional for them. The second thing a would-be fascist leader does is to find a scapegoat mm -hmm. on whom to blame that problem. Yes. Uh -huh. That's the story of the Holocaust, among many other horrific stories we can tell. Find a scapegoat on whom to blame the problem, even though the scapegoat fundamentally has nothing to do with the problem. But because fascist, would-be fascist leaders know how to pluck people's emotions, finding the right scapegoat is a, is a key part of their formula. And so when I saw the leaders of this country starting to say, your, your misery, all of you who are white and lower middle class or middle class and not going anywhere, your misery is because of people of color coming into this country yeah. and consuming all of our resources. Yeah. Um, I got alarmed. 
and I don't think unreasonably so. No. Um, that was a classic fascist move. Mm-hmm. That's not an insult. That's a description. It's a worrisome description. Uh, I regard it as a morally repugnant thing to do, but it's a description of anything of something that a political science would recognize as a, a scientist would recognize as a fascist tendency. And the third thing, having gotten onto a problem that really bothers people, having found a scapegoat to blame it on, is that the leader then promises to eliminate the scapegoat in one way or another. We all know what that promise looked like and how it played out horrifically in the Third Reich. These days, it looks like anti-immigrant, anti-people of color, anti-this, anti-that. It looks like building a wall around this country so that white people will be safe and the economy will be safe for white people. Well, what's wrong with the economy for everybody has nothing to do with immigration. It turns out that immigrants actually make an enormous economic contribution to this country. Yes. Uh And it also turns out that the food stamps, for example, that are now being taken away from many, many needy people are being, statistically speaking, taken, taken away from a lot more whites than they are people of color. But there are folks who don't drill down into that deep enough to realize that, that they are harming themselves by buying this false line of what is essentially fascist logic. So my dilemma is, is, is pretty simple, and it also explains why I want to devote myself to a revolution that has to do with honestly naming things. The dilemma is that there are a lot of people who don't want to listen to the technical definition of terms that we should be talking about. Instead, they want to hear a wor- the F word as a gratuitous insult, uh, you know, coming from a commie liberal type. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I use that word as a concerned citizen of the United States who's been around long enough to see a lot of horrific stuff done in the name of a false analysis of a problem, the naming of a scapegoat, and the elimination of that scapegoat. And I would love to join a revolution where we could have creative conversations around serious matters of that sort without drawing swords on each other. And I think think something you said, this is really powerful and important stuff. I, 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 my heart's with you on this one in terms of uh, the question of how to engage with that revolution of, of language and conversation. Um, that there's a difference between being able to s- describe something with clarity and with concern and kind of call out. You know, there's, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it gets equated with this idea of, you know, um, I'm going to tell off somebody or call them out, you know, and that mm-hmm. that's yes. not what you're talking about at all. Um, I think what you're talking about is having a conversation using terms um, that are descriptive and clear and 
uh, not meant to be insulting. And I, I, I think that's what gets into it sometimes that there is this, well, that's insulting. It's like, well, no, it's descriptive. And we need to be able to talk about what the elements of um, movement toward fascist tendencies or nationalist tendencies, what what are the earmarks of that? What what does that look like? What does that look like historically? And um, if we're recognizing any of that happening in our communities, in our country, being able to talk about it honestly with one another, like this is a concern and um, and this is historically how it works. Yeah. Well, thank you for that that feedback. I mean, that's encouraging. I, you know, I'm an 80 year old man. I'm not a middle schooler. I've got better things to do with my limited time on Earth than hurl insults at people. Gratuitous insults have you know verbal food fights. Yeah. Uh, that may satisfy a certain animal instinct in me or in other people. But it clearly doesn't get us anywhere. And what a stupid, wasteful way to spend much time in one's life. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do yearn to engage in serious citizen conversation with people who are willing to do their homework around terms like fascist and who also are, are willing to do enough homework to perhaps persuade me that I've got it wrong. I would be thrilled to be persuaded that I've got it wrong. I'd be thrilled to be persuaded that there's another way to look at this which makes it more hopeful and more promising. That's not going to happen unless other people are willing to enter this this conversational forum with me, there's a safe space where we can talk these things out. Uh, and I, I do yearn for that and would like to contribute to that revolution. Well... A lot of what you're talking about, also the idea of of clear speech, prophetic speech, I think is is something that a lot of people are wrestling with right now. How do I be clear and true and have these conversations in ways that that the conversation doesn't shut down immediately? And I think that's part yeah. of what happens for people say, well, if I use that term, it's going to shut down the conversation immediately because it will be interpreted as being an insult instead of language, uh, clear language that I really want to engage with. And, and as you said, if you, if you could convince me that I needn't be concerned about this, then that, that would be a part of a wonderful conversation, but you'd have to engage with the term yeah. um, to do that. So, yeah. so I think that idea of, of always trying to find a way to, to stay engaged clearly on what you feel are, are, are issues of importance and stay in conversation with them. I, you know, I think it's so important. I, I love that you just say it flat out because, again, we tiptoe around right now a lot, thinking, "Well, I'm going to be misunderstood here." I, and I have to, I have to, you know, it, it, part of my responsibility as one who wants to engage in this revolution is I have to accept the fact that I'll be misunderstood yes. by a mm-hmm. certain number of people and that they won't like me very much. Mm-hmm. And you know, for for a person who likes to be liked, as as most of us do, that can be very difficult. But it comes with the territory. It comes with the territory of trying to engage in honest speech in reasonable ways that don't lead to food fights, but that lead to illumination. And I'll just I'll just end this uh, this with one with one hopeful note, and that is that if folks go to that. 
uh, on being website and, and look up the article, which we'll provide a link to, that was published eight, eight months before the election in 2016, they'll find a lot of appreciative comments uh, from people who were thinking the same thoughts, but I think didn't know that it would be possible to express them in public without being torn to shreds. And I do think there's some risk-taking involved in any revolution, right? It's part of the yes. definition of what it means to to be at all revolutionary. So what about you, Carrie? I've probably talked too long on this, and oh, I no. apologize for that. Oh, no, this was, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm sitting here going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conversation I've been wanting to have. So, uh, so thank you so much for um, your your thoughts on that first revolution. And I think, I think for myself, that idea of clear speech and prophetic speech is something I think about all the time as a writer, as a, a person who uh, often speaks publicly, but also just in my daily life. Uh, in every interaction and with people who who I tend to line up with and agree with uh, on a lot of issues and people I don't um, that mm-hmm. often that there are are differences of how we're we're viewing uh, an issue so um, it's something I think about a lot and I really like the freedom and the acknowledgement that it's risky when you risk being true but I also have this sense that you know, when I'm true, that gives other people the permission to be true as well. I think that's right. To not just be reactive, but to be true. To, to say, this is what's on my heart. You know, mm. you're not talking about something that's just, you know, a theory or something kind of just intellectually out there. You're talking about things that are deeply upon your heart right now. Yes. And so... I like that in terms of my own revolution as well. It's like, how do I um, be really true to what's deeply upon my heart in a way that that uh, encourages those I'm connecting with to be deeply true as well? That when I speak even about things that are difficult or the terminology is difficult, that I do it in such a way that it, it welcomes the conversation that it you know it's like it's not call out culture it's welcoming the conversation and making it safe yes. for me to speak true and making it safe for the person I'm in conversation with to be true as well um, right. it's a big job but it must be done it is a big job and imperfect i mean <laughs> you know how many times have i walked around with my foot in my mouth you know that well that didn't come out exactly like i meant it to um, but, but I think you'd have to hop, hop around, not walk around with your foot in your mouth. But anyway, well, yeah, proceed. Yeah, yeah. well, there's that. <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> but anyways, um, you know the the fact that you know I do get it wrong, and it's not it's not like a, a perfect straight line that I'm figuring all this revolution stuff out. That, but as long as I'm coming from my heart, as long as I'm coming from being true, then I have a whole lot, I have a, a higher chance of engaging and speaking in ways that I feel good about, you know, as long as I'm being true. I think about, you know, engagement in, in many of the issues I'm, I'm involved with 
and concerned about that are on my heart as well. You know, one of the things I think about a lot is, is what is my part in the revolution of the environment and the climate? Um, what is, what is my part in that? And uh, I'm deeply concerned about it. It's, it, I think about it a lot. And there's a lot of people I think walking around right now who are, um, or even in grief about it, that idea of climate grief, that there is a, a large and um, impending and actually happening now problem that that um, each one of us will be affected by. And, and also the, the knowledge that those who are most vulnerable, those on the margins will be affected first and hardest. You know, that's that's another thing that I, I think about a lot in terms of justice. So, so what is it that 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 I can do, and and how do I take that inner work, that my truth about that, and how does that express in my daily engagement in, with the world? How how does that become prophetic speech and clear speech about my concerns for the environment? I when it, when you when I talk about what's coming from that deep love, what's on, upon your heart. I mean, I have a great and deep love for the natural world. Um, I have a deep and great love for how the wheels of that work, you know. You know, there's a revolution that we think about in terms of change, but there's also the revolution of the wheel, the way it goes around, and that it goes around a, uh, in a perfect way. And I have so much love and, and awe about how the wheels of this world of the natural mm. world have been interfered with in a way that, um, you know, that's causing a lot of deep and important changes in our environment. So, so some of that's looking at what I can do personally every day. And we all are doing that, you know, whether it's as simple as, you know, changing light bulbs. I mean, those, those small things that we do that actually make a difference and some in supporting legislators that, that are talking about true and clear change in how we um, interact with our natural world. Some of it right. is really supporting, you know, uh, Joanna Macy calls it the great turning, that we are in this moment of critical change, that uh, a tipping point has happened, and that it, it's not that it's starting right now, but that it's been ongoing for a long time and that we're reaching that point where there's a critical um, number of people saying things have to change and, and beginning to do work that and, and be aware in ways that they hadn't been before. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's part of it too. It's like, how do I support the great turning, that transformation that's happening right now with a lot of people um, all over the world that, you know, I think about someone like Greta Thunberg, who's the one voice, she's one voice, and yet she has inspired so many uh, young people to get mm-hmm. involved, to to not just despair, though she talks very, you know, she talks very candidly about despair and depression about the climate. But then, as a, uh, an individual voice, standing up, and speaking her truth and talking, you know, in language like you were talking, even what we were just talking about in terms of language of politics, but the language of environment, very clearly, mm-hmm. and without, yes. in, and without any kind of apology about it, you know. So, mm-hmm. and 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 again, inspiring others 
to be that clear and to be that honest and human about their their worries, what's on their heart, and also what I can personally do. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's... Uh... She, she inspires me, too, as you do, with what you just said about climate change and the environment. You know, I will, I will never forget her standing before uh, a group whose name I don't know, but it was an international high-powered group of, of older adults. And she looked at them famously and said, you have all this information and you're doing nothing. How dare you? How dare you? And when I saw this young woman who's, what, 16 or something like that, um, speak that way in a public forum, in, in so straight and so morally true, yes. uh, it inspired me to say to myself, Parker, how dare you not speak and act on things you know to be true? Yeah. Uh, or you, at least you believe they're true and need to expose it to the thinking of other people to test their their truth it's, or its truth. So I'm totally with you on that one, Carrie. I think, too, in terms of the revolution, you know, revolutions, <laughs> okay, you know, revolutions need songs. You know? Absolutely, they do. Re- I hope you've got one for this revolution. I, I do, and I and I believe that too. That that revolutions need um, truth. They need passion. They need that that ongoing connection between people. Um, but you know, they also need uh, hope, and they need they need a sense of humor. They need songs. And that's something that, okay, just in terms of the environment, I'm going to get on my little Carrie uh, soapbox for just a second here, that I think for a long time, there's been this attitude that if we just give people enough information, they will change their behavior. And information is super important. I think that's really important. But I don't think it's the full picture. I think that positive change happens when it's personal, when when it's upon your heart. And it's upon the heart of your community. So I, I think that's where sometimes the arts, that's where dialogue, that's where you know, music sometimes can kind of be one more piece of that, that revolution, that catalyst. So I have a song. <laughs> I, have I a song. think I may know which one it is, and it's beautiful. Well, I just wrote something new. So, um, and it's called uh, On the Day You Were Born. And um, there's a, a beautiful children's book about on the day you were born and all these things that were happening on the day you were born. Just a lovely book. And um, uh, I started thinking about that and how, yes, that the wheels of this world, of the natural world, move in such a beautiful and, and eternal way. And that, you know, on the day that you were born, on the day that you were born, the world opened up just a little bit and welcomed you into all that motion to the winds and how the patterns of the winds moved across the world and how the water made its way to the sea and how the animals were in migration and and people were doing rituals that they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years. You know, it's like all these wheels were moving uh, in this eternal kind of way and the world welcomed us in. And I, mm-hmm. and that someday, someday, when it's time for me to, to leave this particular world, um, 
the, the wheels of this world will open up a little bit more and I'll be welcomed into the next motion. Mm-hmm. Whatever the yes. next motion is. So, so that's what the song is about uh, on the day that you were born. Beautiful. The sun went down and the moon came out on the day that you were born. The stars were more than we could count on the day that you were born. On a morning that was old and new, on the day that you were born, the world opened up to welcome you on the day that you were born. It's all mystery and motion, how the wheels of this world opened. There were gentle rains and summer storms on the day that you were born. Winds blew patterns through the trees on the day that you were born. The waters wandered toward the sea on the day that you were born. It's all mystery and motion, how the wheels of this world open. There were gentle rains and summer storms on the day that you were born. Buds fade and bloom again on the day that you were born. The birds knew when they knew when on the day that you were born. In the clouds and vapor, the quiet lakes on the day that you were born. The deepest currents and the waves that break on the day that you were born. It's all mystery and motion, how the wheels of this world open. There were gentle rains and summer storms on the day that you were born. In the prayers and psalms that whisper through the trees, in the secret places only God can see, in the things we feel but cannot be said, We all hold hands and bow our heads. Seasons pass and seasons grow on the day that you were born. There were things we'll never know on the day that you were born. But love is on, love is true on the day that you were born. And love will always welcome you on the day that you were born. It's all mystery and motion, how the wheels of this world open. There were gentle rains and summer storms on the day that you were born. It's all mystery and motion, how the wheels of this world open. There were gentle rains and summer storms on the day that you were born. Thank you, Carrie. I, I really love that song, and I just love the resonance with um, with the Howard Thurman quote from which we got the title of the Growing Edge, because that's a quote as you as you know, where Thurman says, "There's a lot of death and destruction in the world," and we've been talking about that in relation to the couple of revolutions that we care about, 
But he says, uh, the birth of a child is nature's continual answer to death and destruction, the emergence of new life. And your song evokes all of that for me. It, it evokes um, an appreciation not only for the birth of that child, but the way in which the, the cosmos kind of conspires to welcome that, that child into the world and to kind of sing its own song of celebration when, when a child is born. Um, so we're talking about things that are very, very close to our hearts, right? And, you know, and, and close to our hearts in terms uh, of a, a child being this expression of hope in, into the world, but also our, ourselves. I mean, when each one of us was born into this world, the world opened up and welcomed us in. That And that, um, you know, and that, uh, motion is continuing to happen for each one of us. And I think that's an important, important thought. I think kind of going back to uh, all these revolutions that we we're talking about um, being something that's deeply upon our heart, that uh, we've talked on this podcast before about that sometimes when something's important to us and it's deeply upon our hearts, our hearts may be broken by it. At that point, we have the choice of whether or not it will be broken apart or broken open. And I think what we're right. talking about today is the, the, the revolution of uh, even uh, when our hearts are broken, that they're broken open, uh, and that we're somehow able to, to hold this, what we're, you know, to hold this revolution that we're talking about in creative tension. Yes, I, I like that. I like that very much as a place to bring our revolutionary conversation to a close because revolutions are so often associated with people who have fixed and frozen positions and they use their positions against as weapons against folks who disagree with them. And we're talking about a very different posture here, a very different way of, of, of helping revolutions along. It's an open-hearted way. It's a broken open-hearted way because it's the broken open heart that can hold all the creative tensions that arise when we talk about what's happening politically in this country or what's happening in a, environmentally and in terms of climate change around the world. Um, we need open-hearted people to engage these conversations in a mindful way. Uh, open-hearted doesn't mean mindless or it doesn't mean mushy-minded. It means that you hold creative tensions uh, while doing the homework necessary to understand what it is that you're talking about, what it is that you're seeing, how it is that you're trying to engage other people. So I guess my feeling is that if, if I, you, we can go into the new year that way, uh, it's, a, it's a hopeful and promising year ahead. Yes, I think so, too. Well, Parker, um, I know we're coming to the close of our podcast, but before we close, I do want to um, talk about something that's really exciting that will be uh, a new feature on our website. Uh, we've been hearing stories from people on how they're using this podcast as a way to begin conversations with individuals right. or small groups. So we thought it would be really wonderful to make available um, uh, conversation starters, different kinds of ideas for, for conversation. So we hope people will visit our website at newcomerpalmer.com and check out this new feature. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave us a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because the wheels of the world are opening up just a little bit for her. 